All right, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 5. Would you please open your Bibles there? Navigate on your devices, your tablets, or your phone. Or you can just pay attention. You don't have to do any of that. If you need a Bible, uh, go back into the foyer and one of the ushers will get you a Bible. But uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20 this morning. The topic, Jesus gives the demons who identify themselves as legion permission to enter a herd of 2,000 pigs. So the title of our message is Deviled Ham. Thank you. My work is done. I'm going to retire. You don't know that. I'm going to retire into titling messages. And I'll just come out and give the title of the message and then leave while these younger guys, you know, actually do the work. But anyway, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you uh, for this uh, section of scripture, these 20 verses. uh, One of the strangest stories in the New Testament. And yet one that is packed with meaning for us uh, here in the 21st century. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher as you promised he would be. All we need is ears to hear what he wants to say to the church. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I dare you later to Google animals in warfare. It will blow your mind. Disregard the search if you're any kind of an animal lover. You won't like what you read. We immediately think of horses and dogs in warfare, maybe carrier pigeons, but a lot of other more obscure examples exist of animals used in warfare. In the Bible, we read about Samson employing animals in a unique way in his battles against the Philistines. Judges chapter 15, Samson went and caught 300 foxes. He took torches turned the foxes tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Sort of a makeshift flamethrower there in the book of Judges. Outside of the Bible, maybe you already know that monkeys were set on fire and released to ravage enemy encampments. As recently as 2003, Morocco offered monkeys to the United States military stationed in Iraq. 2,000 monkeys gathered from the Atlas Mountains were specially trained to be used for detonating mines. I'm not sure what kind of specialized training you need to detonate a mine. Uh, probably just to keep going forward while your buddies are being blown up. But uh, we turned them down, probably so that the American public didn't have to see Curious George get blown to smithereens on the nightly news. Don't get me started on weaponized dolphins. The Soviets, just one story about weaponized dolphins. The Soviets were training them to carry explosives towards enemy warships and frogmen to be remotely detonated. The program reportedly ran out of funding before it ran out of dolphins. Uh, And in 2000, the dolphins that were left were sold to Iran. You don't want to swim with the dolphins in the Mediterranean Sea if you're on vacation. If you do, you might end up sleeping with the fishes, as we like to say. Now, by far, elephants were the most feared beasts of the ancient world's battlegrounds. You've seen lots of movies uh, where elephants come into play. 
They were huge, powerful, and very imposing. They were used like a tank, plowing down the enemy while the riders were firing off arrows. Elephants were used successfully against the Roman legions until the Romans developed their countermeasure. Their ingenious anti-elephant weapon was incendiary pigs. You heard me right. This is all true, by the way. Covered in pitch or tar, then set on fire, pigs would be released onto the battlefield. Their high-pitched, loud squeals, erratic movements, and the fire would scatter the elephants, neutralizing their effect on the battlefield. Pigs figure prominently in our text this morning in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 5. They're likely the property of the Roman legion stationed in the 10-city area known as Decapolis. It's unlikely they were dedicated war pigs, although they certainly could be used in that way, as no special combat training was necessary to be set on fire. They were most likely a food source for the soldiers stationed there. Bacon hardtack biscuits and sour wine were in fact the staple foods of the Roman legion. The main incident in the Bible story is the deliverance of a notoriously demon-possessed man. But the fact that the demons are allowed to enter the herd of swine, 2,000 strong, and cause them to stampede, hurtling themselves to their death, the pigs that is, not the demons, it's pretty weird. We'll do our best to make some sense of what was going on I'll organize my thoughts around two questions that are suggested by the text. Number one, when have you told Jesus to go? And number two, where has Jesus told you to go? Uh, Number one, verses 1 through 17, when have you told Jesus to go? Now, when last we saw the Lord, he was in a small boat in a flotilla of other small boats carrying him and his disciples uh, across the sea to this beachhead. I want us to think in terms of an invasion, to see Jesus and his boats as we would an invasion force, like a D-Day force, landing on the beach to conquer enemy territory. So we pick it up in verse 1, of course, where it says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. Now, this story is also told by Matthew and Luke. In Matthew's gospel, we're told Jesus came to the country of the Gergesenes. Now, these are both ways of referring to the same geography. This was a predominantly Gentile territory known as Decapolis, so-called because of 10 prominent cities in the vicinity. It's like us today saying twin cities or tri-cities or tri-state to designate an area. So this was the area known as Decapolis. Verse 2, and when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Matthew mentions two men. Not a problem. Pam might ask me later today if I saw a particular person at church this morning. If I say yes, it doesn't mean I didn't see a lot of other people too. And so Matthew mentions two men. Mark concentrates on one particular individual. We've said before that the phrase unclean spirit was another way of describing a demon. It's how Jews referred to demons. He comes out of the tombs. This is a region of hills and cliffs, so most likely the tombs were natural caves that could be used for burial. Their met him is too polite. Don't be fooled into thinking that this man wasn't all that dangerous. Think of this as a potential assault. In another gospel, we're told he prevented people from passing that way. He was violent. 
This man possessed by demons came out to do mischief. He came out to do harm. It says in verse 3, he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains. If you weren't already creeped out that he came out of the tombs, now you're told that he lived there. That was his address. They had tried binding him, even with chains, but to no avail. It says in verse 4, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. The more they tried to subdue him, the stronger he got. It was unnatural. Obviously, it was supernatural. They couldn't tame him, so it appears they tried to contain him in the tombs, giving him a certain freedom to roam about in the surrounding wilderness area. The the idea you get here is that they drove him out into the tombs And he found a contentment out there, hanging out in the tombs and the general wilderness area, leaving the citizenry alone. Verse 5, and always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. It seems he never slept. He wandered this territory, vigilant against any trespassers, day or night. To add to his terror, he would shriek and go around cutting himself. I wonder if local kids dared each other to go out there and see the demoniac in the tombs. You know they did. Did you have anything like that here in Kings County? In San Bernardino, we had a house. uh, It had an alley behind it. It was an older house with an alley behind it where a witch supposedly lived. The Witch Maloof was her name. And uh, kids would dare each other to go and knock on the door. It, was, it looked like a haunted house. I mean, it really did, you know. And, and, and uh, you'd dare kids to do that. And when we got older, you would, I never did because I'm not stupid, but you dare kids to drive their car uh, in the alley back there and honk the horn or something. And, and they would chuck stuff over onto your car and break your windshield and stuff. That's why I never did it. But it's just somebody who didn't like to be bothered and Back then, you could do stuff like that. It was legal. And so, uh, anyway, but, but kids, you know, they love... You're going to be watching... Some of you are going to watch The Grinch again, right? Not the cartoon version, the real version, but, I mean, the movie version with Jim Carrey. And there's a scene, as I recall, where some kids from Whoville go up to try and see The Grinch, and he scares them. And this is a very Grinchy kind of a scene, only not funny. You know, The Grinch, he kind of... He, stay, he was content to stay by himself in his little domain until they, you know got him to come down. And so this demoniac, he's, he's living out in the tombs. He's crying out, shrieking, cutting himself. And, and the citizens, they, they hear him and see him from a distance, but pretty much they left each other alone. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him. Now he had undoubtedly witnessed the boats landing on the shore. And so he started out so that he would overpower these intruders. At some point, he recognized Jesus. I say he, meaning the multiple demons possessing him. This guy had never seen the Lord before, but they knew who he was. Worship here means they recognized Jesus' authority. They did not offer Jesus' worship in the normal sense of that word, singing how great thou art or some such chorus. It wasn't that kind of worship. It was an every knee shall bow sort of thing. The demons knew they were in the presence of God and they were forced to acknowledge it. And so verse 7, he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? 
I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Demons have a very orthodox Christology. They understand Bible doctrine probably better than we do. They know Jesus to be the unique Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. I want to add that they know Bible prophecy and that they take it literally, not figuratively or allegorically. We talk about that a lot here. There are different approaches to Bible prophecy, future Bible prophecy. And there are those who say, for example, the entire book of the Revelation is allegorical, uh, it is figurative, it, it, it's not real event. There won't be a real thousand-year kingdom. Thousand just means a kind of a long, extended period of time, and, and, and they get into all of that. I want to point out to you that demons believe the Bible to be literal, even in the area of prophecy. Now, the torment the demons were referring to is explained in the other Gospels as sending them to be incarcerated in the abyss before the time. In those other gospel accounts, they beg Jesus to not send them to the abyss before the time. They're referring to future prophetic events. When Jesus returns in his second coming, he will have Satan bound and cast into the abyss for a thousand years. His demons will likewise be incarcerated. At the end of the thousand-year kingdom of heaven on the earth, just before the creation of the new earth, the devil and his demons will be once for all and forever thrown into the lake of fire that was created for their eternal punishment. And so demons know that what awaits them in the future is the abyss and then hell. And they take it literally. They don't, they're not even hoping it's an allegory. They know it's going to happen. If demons take future prophecy literally, we should too. And we, of course, do, but so should others who read the Bible. Jesus had authority over the demons. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, as his ambassadors on the earth, we have his delegated authority. His authority, not our ability, is what overcomes demons. By ability, I mean we don't need a crucifix or holy water or special prayers and incantations. Hollywood's done a great job of ruining the way we approach demons. Every, I mean, think of all the great exorcisms on film, whether it's TV or in the movies. The priest comes in. And he has to be a specially trained priest to do exorcisms. He's got a crucifix this big with Jesus hanging on the cross. And when he goes like this, the demon, ah! <laughs> that doesn't work. That never works very long. The demon gets control. Then he comes out with the big artillery, the holy water. And the demon is burning and screaming and shrieking. And depending whether it's rated PG-13 or R, he's cursing and doing all these different things. Meanwhile, they're reading out of a book of Latin, some book that's falling apart. It's like 100,000 years old. It's like, she wrote a Honda. She wrote a Honda. It's amazing to me how often in the movies the demons win. They just, you know, I mean, the, my first demon exorcism movie was The Exorcist, where the uh, original priest dies during the exorcism, and then the second guy who doesn't believe in demons jumps out the window. I don't know how successful that is. <laughs> that seems like a loss on my, you know, demons to, uh, you know, priests zero. But anyway, uh, we don't need to do any of that. 
There are some demons, Jesus said, who are more difficult than others. In those cases, he said, you must be fasting and praying. We take that to mean that you should have a lifestyle of fasting and praying so that you can meet them with his authority. You don't need to learn ancient Latin spells or collect relics. Don't be drawn into these ritual exorcisms or special prayers or the identifying of territorial spirits or demanding their names. It's not biblical. Now, having just said that, we read in verse 9, Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Ah, you say, Jesus did ask him for a name. Look, it wasn't a regular thing Jesus did with demons. He never did this in any other exorcism or uh, deliverance. It's clear from the rest of the story, Jesus asked him his name for our sake, not for the purposes of defeating them, but so that we would know there were a legion of demons that were affecting this man. Now, legion would immediately cause you to think about the Roman legion stationed in Decapolis. A Roman legion was at least 6,000 troops, both mounted and infantry. Were 6,000 demons in this one man? Maybe, if not that many, there were a lot because in a moment they're going to possess 2,000 pigs. Jesus had defeated Satan in one-on-one champion combat in the wilderness temptations. He had effectively bound the strong man and he'd been going around casting demons out of folks, recovering from Satan his stolen property. What if somebody had thousands of demons? How is Jesus going to fare against them? Well, here on the beach, he confronted thousands of demons at once and resoundingly defeated them with no help and with uh, suffering no casualties. It's a powerful testimony to his disciples that Satan was a defeated foe. Sure, he continued to battle, but the war was won. It seems like the devil himself and no amount of demons could stop Jesus from accomplishing his ministry. And so in verse 10, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. They didn't want to be sent prematurely to the abyss, neither did they want to be sent out of their immediate territory. They're pretty bossy for conquered demons, don't you think? Hey, Jesus, don't send us into the abyss before the time, and we like it here. It's reminiscent of Satan's parlay with God in the opening two chapters of the book of Job, where God hears out the devil, and then he grants him limited permission to mess with Job. Have you seen those commercials, Messing with Sasquatch? (laughs) And I love those. They find some Bigfoot, some Sasquatch, and they go, hey, watch this. And they, they, you know, get them all sticky. And while they're laughing, then he picks up a log and throws it through their head or something, you know. And so you think, man, why is God letting the devil mess with us? Why would a God of love give the devil and his demons permission? Why not simply crush the devil once for all? Well, that's the million-dollar question. That's the big thing on everybody's mind. Let me give you a reason the devil goes on temporarily that becomes clear in the incredible reaction of these citizens. After Jesus defeated Satan by delivering a man from thousands of demons who had been viciously tormenting people in the region, they refused to believe in him for salvation and instead they asked him to leave. It isn't that God is unable or that he's unwilling to rein in the devil. Jesus had the devil bound, and he would have remained so, except that the religious leaders and the majority of the people were unwilling to submit to the authority 
and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus, he beat the devil in the, in the wilderness. And he was casting out devils and demons everywhere he went. And he took on uh, uh, thousands of demons all at once. And then people said, would you leave so that we can continue in this status quo? And then they have the audacity to say, why isn't God doing anything? Well, he's, he's done an awful lot. You know, in the Garden of Eden, God said, I'm going to come. I'm going to solve this mess that, I, that you created by a, a wrong exercise of your free will. I'm going to solve this. You're gonna, Satan, you're going to bruise my heel, but I am going to what? I'm going to crush your head. And so it's not that God hasn't acted or isn't willing to act. It's that men refuse God's offer of salvation. Now, a large herd, verse 11, of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. This is weird, and it's okay to say so. No one can answer the whys of this. No one can answer why Jesus gave permission. No one can answer why Legion wanted to go into the herd of swine. What I mean by no one can answer it is all we can do is speculate. The text doesn't tell us why these things happen. And so we want to beware wild speculation here. Like one thing that I always read is that demons have to possess something. Uh, they, they take from this that they, they don't want to be disembodied spirits. And so if they can't possess people, they possess animals. Uh, and, and you know what? That is not taught here. We don't know why they decided to go into the swine. They just said, hey, uh, you know, cast us into the swine. And anything more than that is, is crazy. Now, we don't see rampant demonic possession today. We really don't. I don't think it's because we are too skeptical. I think it's because Satan has changed his strategy. You know, we're accused, especially Western Christians, this is a, an easy accusation. People say, well, we live in the West. We're more analytical, mathematical, scientific, less given to metaphysical principles and things like that. And so we just don't see demon possession, even though it's all around us. I'll tell you, if I drove down 10th Avenue and there was a naked guy cutting himself in the cemetery there, I think I'd recognize demon possession. Don't you? And so I don't think it's that we don't recognize it or that we're too skeptical. I think Satan's changed his strategy. Here's something to consider. Demonic possession was not a big thing in the Old Testament. We always forget about that. One of the commentators goes so far as to claim that there are no recorded cases of demonic possession at all in the Old Testament. Now, immediately you think of King Saul, but he doesn't really qualify. An evil spirit was sent to torment him, but didn't really possess him. And he was never exercised of it. It would just come and go. When Jesus was on the earth and shortly thereafter, there seemed to be a spike in demonic possession. Nothing really in the Old Testament. Not a big satanic strategy. Then Jesus comes as the Messiah and bam, it seems like demons are everywhere. Legions of them. Possessing people like crazy. Apparently, the presence of the unique God-man was met by a virtual invasion of demons. I can imagine, and that's all it is, demons getting together with the devil, him and his lieutenant, saying, hey, we've done everything we can through history to prevent the Son of God from being born. Remember that Moses thing where we were trying to kill all the male children and that thing with Haman during the time of Esther? We tried to keep Jesus from being born, but he's been born. What are we going to do now? 
Some demon raises his hand and says, let's just invade the earth and possess as many people as we can and keep Jesus occupied. And that apparently is what happened. And Jesus, of course, just went around casting demons out of people with no effort. One here, one here, a thousand here, 6,000 here. It's an amazing battle that's taking place. Now, while demon possession may be down, it still exists, but there is an absolute explosion all over the globe of occult and supernatural activities that are sourced by Satan. He's adapted, and his strategies are far more sinister and dangerous than ever. Just what the devil is doing on the internet is way worse than possessing people. Possession is a waste of resources in, in the modern technical era when the devil can have so much more impact in so many other ways. Verse 13, and at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine, there were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. Now, many commentators assume it was Jews who were herding the swine in contradiction to the law of Moses and that their destruction was therefore a deserved judgment. You'll have to notice that none of the gospel accounts say that. It's an assumption. It conveniently solves the moral dilemma of Jesus allowing demons to destroy someone's property, but it's highly unlikely that that was the case. This is Gentile territory, Decapolis is Gentile territory. Jews would not be swine herding in Decapolis. And by the way, when Jesus told the famous parable of the prodigal son, it's likely that Decapolis was the far country his audience would think of as the place that he was reduced to feeding the swine. Now, the size of the herd argues for it being provisioned for the Roman legion stationed in Decapolis. They needed lots of bacon. The demons called themselves legion, and there was a Roman legion there. Is there a connection? I don't know, but here's one thought I had. On the night he was crucified, Jesus commented that if he asked, his father in heaven would do what? Supply him with more than 12 legions of angels to fight for him against his enemies. If we stay with the military spiritual aspects of this story, then at the very least, Jesus is establishing that no legion could overcome him. Not a demonic legion, not a human legion. Satan may have legions of demons, but Jesus has more in terms of angels. But he's so powerful by himself that they aren't even needed against the devil. Men have legions, but what are they against legions of angels? In the Old Testament, a single angel, not a legion, one angel was responsible for killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers while they slept in their tents. Do the math. 12 legions times 185,000. You're talking about an apocalyptic event. And so Jesus... Uh, interesting. This is all, of course, speculation, but it's a good biblical speculation because we know that uh, we're in a spiritual war and the Lord is establishing that he has his legions uh, as well and they are superior to anything that the devil or mankind can marshal. And so verse 14, those who fed the swine and uh, they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
Mark must have been modest because only now do you understand that in addition to shrieking and cutting himself, this guy went around naked. He was clothed, meaning he was not clothed before. Uh, And so the whole thing is just weird. Verse 16, those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Now, you might think an amazing work of God was ready to break out. Everywhere Jesus went, he would perform some miracle, and then crowds would come out uh, demanding healing and and, uh, deliverance. And then they began to plead with him, verse 17, to depart from their region. We ought to be stunned by this. There must have been among them in a 10-city region many who were sick and suffering, afflicted, needing healing. Then too, as far as they knew, two to 6,000 demons were still in the area on the loose, presumably looking for new human hosts. They'd asked Jesus publicly, don't, don't you know, kick us out of this region. We like it here. And, and when the pigs died, I think people understood that the demons did not die with them. And so uh, it's a kind of a two-edged sword here. On the one hand, there's all kinds of people needing help and healing, and there's a fear that demons are still at loose, but they ask Jesus to leave. Have you heard the expression, better the devil you know than the devil you don't? It means that it's often better to deal with someone you're familiar with and know, even if they are evil, rather than take a risk on something unknown, which could actually be worse. In this case, the people were saying, better the devil we know than the Lord we don't want to know. They didn't want to know Jesus. They didn't want him in their region. They wanted him gone. Despite the legion of demons and the legion of soldiers, the citizens of Decapolis were doing okay. It seemed a reasonable trade-off, the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few, in this case, two demoniacs. So if Satan would confine his activity to these two guys keep his legion in the tombs, as it were. And if the Roman legion could be gotten along with, even though they were an occupying force, and we could live our life on that level, let's all just get along. Now look around. I think we could each give an example of how our society has learned to live with the devil to maintain certain prosperity. Decapolis told Jesus to go. When have you told Jesus to go? Well, if you're not a believer, you're telling him to go right now. Sadly, if you keep telling him to go, one day it'll be too late to receive him. He will have to tell you to depart from him into outer darkness to eternal conscious suffering. And so anytime, any unbeliever is constantly, especially when presented with the gospel, but all the time they're telling Jesus, no, I want you to go. I don't want to have anything to do with you. My life might be miserable, but I think I can make it better. I'll, I'll eventually quit uh, abusing this substance. I'll eventually quit abusing my family. I'll eventually do these other things. Uh, there's help for me if I want it, those kinds of things. And so people, you, you know, those of you who are now saved, you tried to preserve a status quo somehow. You didn't want to do this Jesus thing. You didn't want to be a Jesus freak going around with a big smile on your face and pointing to heaven saying, one way, Jesus loves you. You know, you you didn't want to be that kind of a happy person. You you were happy in your misery, as it were. You, You know, it wasn't all that bad. And there was always some carrot on a stick thinking that it could be better. 
Saying go means, and brace yourself, you'd rather the world continue in its current messed up state than have God really, truly intervene. An example I always use, I, I think you know, it, it's ap- applicable. Since we believe in the rapture of the church, that uh, Jesus is going to come imminently, resurrect the dead in Christ, and rapture living believers, that means that there's one last person on earth at some point who's going to receive the Lord, and then the rapture takes place. And, and, and that being the case, the longer that people refuse Christ's offer of salvation to get saved, the more time it gives the devil to operate on earth as men continue to say, no, no, go away, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And so there's a sense in which no non-believer has any accusation to bring against the Lord because he has done everything that he can, not just to save people for time and in eternity, but to deal with the devil and the terrible things that are happening on planet Earth. God has a plan to crush Satan once for all, and he's revealed it. It's not a secret. But men would rather continue in sin than be saved, and by default, they would therefore rather that Satan remain the ruler of this earth. You realize when you say no to Jesus Christ, you are saying yes to the devil. You're saying, I like the way things are right now with Satan as the God of this earth, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. That's all fine with me because it's not really affecting me that much. The rest of the world might be you know, impoverished. People might be suffering in ways that I can't even imagine, but I'm, I'm okay. I'm going to make it. I don't need this Jesus thing. I would suggest that we as believers... We tell Jesus to go anytime we choose sin and selfishness uh, rather than uh, going the Lord's way. When we say no to God, uh, we're telling him to go, hey, Lord, temporarily, would you go? Would you stay behind? Because this is what I'm going to do right now. And we just need to wake up to that, quit doing that. Now, in verses 18 through 20, where has Jesus told you to go? Now, evangelists say all the time, Jesus is a gentleman and won't force himself on anyone. He must be invited in. Asked to leave Decapolis without preaching or teaching or performing any miracles besides this one exorcism, he departs. One person wants to go with him. I bet you can guess who it is. Verse 18, when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. He begged Jesus. He had experienced the demons within him begging Jesus to not send them into the abyss, to not force them to leave the area, to let them enter the herd of swine. Jesus answered their request affirmatively. Clothed and in his right mind, he had listened and watched as the citizens implored Jesus to depart. Jesus said yes to them. How could Jesus refuse him? In verse 19, however, Jesus did not permit him. But said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. This is crazy. The two entities you'd think Jesus would deny, the demons and the crowd, he grants their requests. The one guy whose request you think he would grant, he denies it. But it makes perfect sense as we see Jesus commission the former demoniac as a missionary to Decapolis. It makes perfect sense when we see it in someone else's life. When God says no to me, I'm not always immediately on board. It always seems like God is saying yes to the wicked, yes to the evil-minded, and no to me. But 
if this story teaches us anything, it's that God has a purpose in the things that he allows and disallows. Verse 20, he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Imagine his testimony. He could point out people he'd terrified, that he'd chased, that he'd scared half to death, maybe even that he assaulted. In his audience, when people would gather, he'd say, hey, I remember you. Three weeks ago, I jumped on you from a cliff, you know, and, and punched you in the face. That was me. Hey, you, your kid came out, and I scared him. I jumped naked in front of him and started cutting myself. Man, you should have seen the terrified look on his face. And this is this guy's testimony. It was and it wasn't the same man. It was him, all right, but him transformed by his encounter with Jesus Christ. If I or someone else were to ask you, where has Jesus told you to go, would your answer be, right where I am today? Now, that always sounds so negative. Questions like that always sound so negative where you're like, oh, gosh. You know, you might be right where God wants you to be. I think most of us probably are. You know, we, we don't, don't take an exhortation uh, unless it, it's meant for you. And so if I were to ask you, are you where God wants you to be? A bunch of you, maybe the majority of you could say, yeah, I'm exactly where the Lord wants me. And I'm there to make a difference with the gospel as a witness. Now, let's talk about being a witness for just a second. You're not a judge. You're not the jury. You're not the attorneys. There are times you might act like a judge or, uh, you know, think you're the jury or give, you know, some arguments like an attorney. But generally speaking, you and I are simply called to be witnesses. And a witness is somebody that just gives his honest eyewitness testimony that no one can really refute in your case because it's yours. My, one of my favorite characters in the New Testament, who I think has one of the most profound ministries, is the man born blind whom Jesus heals. He's drug into the religious leaders, and they're peppering him with all these questions and accusations. They're a lot smarter than he is. They're, they've got all the authority of the, the Sanhedrin and the temple behind them. And at one point, he finally says, guys, look, here's the only thing I know a minute ago, I was blind, and now I can see. You tell me what happened. I encountered Jesus Christ. And you know, all of us have that testimony if we're Christians. All of us can say something about, hey, right here, this was me. And then I encountered Jesus Christ. I was born again, and this happened. And it's irrefutable personal testimony now, people might have their questions, you know, why would a God of love allow this? And, why? and we can answer those patiently and lovingly, but no one can really deny your testimony. So you're probably right where God wants you to be, giving your testimony to friends and family. If you can't honestly say you're right where you need to be spiritually, well, that's something you need to address with the Lord. You might need to be stirred up to have a greater impact right where you are. I mean, you could be where you're supposed to be, but you've settled. You're kind of like orange juice that hasn't been shaken. You know, all the pulp is at the bottom. You ever get, a, you know, the last glass of unshaken orange juice? Man, it's nasty. <laughs> and so there's exhortations in the scripture, New Testament, for us to be stirred up. Stir up the gift that is in you. Awake thou that sleepest. You know, wake up, those kinds of things. So probably you're where you need to be. Maybe you need to be stirred up. You might need to move on from where you are. Just because, you know, you've, you're sent to a place doesn't mean that you're always going to be there. 
we need to be open to the Lord leading us in different directions. You probably weren't exercised of thousands of demons when you got saved, but in just as profound a way, you were delivered from your captivity to the devil and set free from sin and from death and from hell. You may not have been demon-possessed, but you were the devil's possession until you met Christ. Now you belong to him. Go forward with his name on your lips, his love in your heart, his grace in your words, his compassion in your serving. Others need deliverance, and you and I are the witnesses of eternal life.